0: Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Product Startup Podcast, a podcast that helps bring your product idea to life by chatting with successful inventors, product designers, and other industry professionals. This podcast is run by Macro Design & Invent and hosted by Philip Belecha. Our goal here is to get to the bottom of what makes a product successful, from initial idea to putting your product on the shelf. We're taking you step-by-step to build a functional product and scale your product business. Now onto the show.
1: The Product Startup Podcast, Episode 4. Welcome to the Product Startup Podcast, helping you turn ideas into successful products step by step. With your host, Philip Valitza. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Product Startup Podcast. This is episode four. Today I'm joined by Brad Summy, the founder of Savage Jerky. Brad and his friends set out to create flavorful, spicy beef jerky that wasn't terrible for you and didn't contain ingredients that belong in a the lab. They launched a Kickstarter in February 2014 and they exceeded their goal in less than 30 days. Today, Brad will talk about how he got started without any food industry experience and how they launched their Kickstarter. In two years, they had created three hot sauces, spice rubs, and 13 flavors of jerky. Brad is very transparent about his whole story, and I think he'll take away great tips, even if you're not looking to launch or grow a food product. So let's get started. Hi, Brad. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Maybe you can tell people about yourself and a little bit about Savage Jerky and how you got to where you are now.
2: We started the company out of the need for a uh, spicy jerky. We were on a road trip in, uh, I think, late 2013, uh, watching, unfortunately, our Georgia Bulldogs get beat by Vanderbilt. Uh, <laughs> so we were in Tennessee, and we were all sort of just miserable, a car full of me and my friends. And we were stopping at little mom-and-pop shops on the way back to uh, to D.C., where I was, uh, was at the time. And um, we just couldn't find anything. It was all the same you know, kind of big jerky conglomerate, uh, shelves, even in the smallest of stores. So, uh, we got back in the car at one point and I said, I'm just going to do this myself. You know, we can't, we can't find anything that we're looking for, so I'll just figure out how to do it myself. And keep in mind, I'm doing technology consulting at the time, so it was kind of way off the beaten path.
1: Right. No, nothing uh, related to cooking or anything like that?
2: Literally nothing. I mean, I, I enjoy cooking, and I I can handle myself in a kitchen pretty well, but uh, I had never made beef jerky. I'd never done anything. Uh, I've, never, I've never brought a physical product to market. I've brought plenty of digital spaces to market, but so everybody laughed at me uh, in the car, and we kind of shrugged it off. And so we got back home, and my family is notorious for getting me little trinkety things for Christmas, as I'm sure most families are. And I finally just I, I sent out a blast, and when everybody asked me what what we wanted for Christmas, and I said, if if anybody's going to give me anything, everybody just put your money together and buy me a dehydrator a food dehydrator and so everybody was kind of really bewildered by that but uh that's what they did and (laughs) in the christmas of 2013 i got a i got a semi-commercial dehydrator a, a very nice you know residential version of a dehydrator and uh I just I made some really awful beef jerky I just that's I I researched it and researched it and um I just went in and decided I was just going to start trying things and we we ate a lot of really terrible beef jerky but slowly but surely it eventually um came around and uh you know we we kind of focused on what we call our mojo, which is a, a Cuban marinade, um, because my wife's family is uh, largely Cuban. And every year around the holidays, they make these gigantic, you know, Cuban porks and it's just incredible. It's garlic, lime, cilantro. It's just, I mean, it's one of the best marinades I've ever had. So we kind of decided we would focus on that and then make spicier versions of that. And uh, yeah, it just kind of went crazy from there. We, you know, we launched a Kickstarter after we had some recipes we thought were hammered down pretty well. And that was well received. And it's just been kind of crazy ever since.
1: Okay. So uh, there's a lot of people that are listening, myself included, who have thought about creating a food product. And to me, as an engineer, that's the most intimidating type of product to create because you go into the grocery store and the competition is ferocious. There's so many products that compete against you and it's all about having the distribution network. For the lack of a better term, how did you have the audacity to say, you know what, I can do this? Like, how did you get past that hurdle? I mean, I think that's amazing. Much of it
2: was ignorance. <laughs> I mean, right. there, you know, sometimes, you know, and we used to say this when we were doing technology projects as well, because we would try to do, uh, you know, we did some of our own, um, you know, forward-facing consumer products in-house. And it was, you can sit around a table and just come up with every reason in the world to not do something. <laughs> uh, and so at some point, you just have to start. And that's uh, if I had any advice for anybody that was going to start creating any sort of product is you just have to start, you know, take that step and get into the kitchen with a dehydrator and just try to figure out exactly what beef jerky is uh, and what goes on behind it and you're going to learn a lot along the way. Trust me, we learned a ton along the way. Once we finally got the recipe and the product hammered out, people think that's the hard part. That's that's not the hard part. And, you know, learning about USDA and FDA regulations and what a co-packer is, you know, because our Kickstarter way exceeded our expectations originally. And so, I knew all the branding and design side of things and marketing from my previous career. So that stuff kind of came naturally and we were able to make things look really flashy and do product mockups and things of that nature. And so it was easier to sell people up front But sort of behind the scenes, we really didn't know exactly what we were doing when it came to, okay, how do we take this pretty picture that's on a screen? And we take these recipes that we have that everybody seems to like and really bring it to market. And we learned a ton that it's not as easy as you think, because, you know, our first big setback was when we took our recipes to a co-packer and we said, okay, this is what we do. And, you know, we were chopping up all these fresh vegetables and we were processing all of this these fresh ingredients. And a facility that makes beef turkey is not set up for that. You know, they, they use a lot of wet marinades and, you know, dry spices and things of that nature. And, you know, it was a huge blow to us because we're like, oh, well, that sucks. <laughs> we we've, This is what we, you know, this is what we've been working on in these recipes we fine tune. And it, and it was kind of a
1: big, you know, blow to our ego a little bit. So I'm going to ask you really quick. Can you explain what a co-packer is for people that might not know?
2: Yeah, of course. So a co-packer. Is a facility that makes uh, private label branded products for other producers. So, uh, for instance, ourselves, we utilize a co-packer because we don't have to deal with you know the USDA regulations and the constant audits and inspections that come along with that, and the cost of equipment and the cost of a warehouse. And, you know, the cost of all of these things that are significant. And so when it comes to bringing a product like this to market or our spice rub or our hot sauces, anything like that, um, you know, we can develop the recipe in-house and work with a co-packer on everything all the way. I mean, really granular. This is the cut of meat we use. This is the exact Worcestershire sauce we use. I mean, these are the things that we use and then they can take it from there and scale it. And so I'm not having to sit in a kitchen all day and, Make racks and racks of beef jerky. I can be focused on engaging with our customers on Twitter or engaging, you know, uh, coming up with our next product or coming up with our next marketing campaign.
1: Right. And so you're able to get the product started really quickly that way, too. So you didn't have to wait for all that stuff to be in place pretty much.
2: Right, right. So it, it came very quickly. And, you know, kind of behind the scenes while we were running our Kickstarter, we were putting those pieces into place, you know, finding a great co-packer, getting samples from that co-packer, working through our recipe. Because, you know, like I, again, I said, our recipes weren't really something that a co-packer would typically deal with. Um, so we, they helped us adjust our recipe to be fit for market. Um, you know, and we just worked back and forth. And the, the key is to find a co-packer that you have a, Uh, you have a strong connection with and, uh, you know, not every co-packer is going to be right for every producer. So, um, So that was by far the hardest uh, challenge we faced was finding the right one.
1: One thing that I don't think you've shared yet is that the premise behind Savage Jerky is that you don't have any preservatives. It's all natural. Did you have any pushback from people in industry or uh, maybe the Coke packers to say, no, there's no way that you can get an all natural product out?
2: You know, it's actually been relatively easy. There was some initial pushback that was like, hey, you know, it's really tough to do jerky products or, you know, dehydrated beef products with some of these ingredients. Ingredients that you're trying to use, and keep your costs to where they need to be in order to make a profit. But we've been of the mindset that we're we would rather uh, sacrifice a little bit on that, and even if it drives my cost up just a little bit, uh, I'm going to use the gluten-free soy sauce over you know just a regularly available soy sauce. You know things of that nature. You know where where I can. Make sure that it's going to be gluten free and free of MSG and free of preservatives. We certainly do, and so far, uh, every single one of our our products is completely all natural, gluten free, and um, and doesn't use any preservatives. But even our bacon, that's uh, bacon amazing. is typically cured with with nitrates and nitrites. Right. Uh, that's just how you make bacon. Right. Um, and we use a we use an uncured bacon even. So wow. our bacon jerky is completely natural. So, and not a lot of people with bacon jerky on the market can say that.
1: That's pretty amazing. So, uh, you touched a little bit on making, I mean, you didn't say prototypes, but you've, you made some initial versions at the house and eventually those got better. I guess you had a test group of some kind that you're kind of testing these on a bunch of friends that sat around eating jerky.
2: Yeah. So <laughs> when we lived in DC, we lived at this little community called national Harbor, right on the Potomac river. And, um, and there's a bar on the harbor that we were kind of regulars at and we kind of just knew everybody that worked there and knew a lot of the people that came in and out of there. And so literally every weekend uh, we were taking giant bags of jerky to the bar and just letting people try it and just seeing what people thought and getting people's reactions. And um, and that's really kind of how we tweaked everything. And that's the funny thing is that all the guys that were in the car with me when I said, hey, I'm just going to do this myself um, – there were there were two guys in the car that are my really good friends and uh as soon as they tried kind of one of the recipes I was really happy with they were like, okay, how do we invest I I'll I want in I'll here's the money you know it's so, that's awesome uh, and now they're two of my partners so it's it's a really funny world that's great
1: so. You were talking about doing a Kickstarter to get funded, and now you're actually running a Kickstarter to...
2: Yeah, so this is actually our third Kickstarter, which some people you know, give us a little bit of a hard time about. But my thing is, why not? I mean, the community is there, and it's a community that wants to uh, back not only startups, but new products and product expansions and you know restaurants building a bigger kitchen you know they the the community thrives on this and they cry, they thrive on seeing a product come from a concept to fruition and when you do that successfully they don't mind if you go and ask them to do it a second or a third time uh, as long as you you put out a solid product the first time around. And so originally the thought was that this wasn't necessarily ever meant to be a company. Uh, It was really set out to be kind of a a project of ours. And we wanted to kind of, you know, make our own jerky in-house. And then all of a sudden it became this kind of quest to – build a bigger and better product, uh, because everybody we let try the jerky was like, why is this readily available? Or, Hey, I need to buy a couple pounds of jerky or this or that. So, uh, (laughs) um, so that's when we decided that Kickstarter would be a great Avenue and being in the technology business at the time, you know, I knew the buzz surrounding Kickstarter and, and kind of the ins and outs and the inner workings of it. So, uh, it just kind of came naturally. And, um, we funded our other two,
1: uh, and then we we funded this one in the first 50 hours of launching it. So that's really amazing. So how did you initially get the word out for that? Did you just go back to the same bars where you were doing the prototype testing and, and said, Hey, uh, so if you guys really want to buy some of this stuff in the future, here's how to make it happen.
2: That's exactly. I mean, we, we went straight back to the people that, kept asking us, how do we get it? Uh, and we said, you know, go back it on this, back it on Kickstarter. And then, you know, sh- obviously sharing it with our personal networks is huge. I mean, that you have to be able to ask, if you can't ask your friends and family to buy something, <laughs> how are you going to be able to ask, you know, just random people on Twitter random people, you know, or go to a, a grocery buyer and say, Hey, you know, buy our product. So that was the big thing is just getting all of our friends and family and their friends and families. and just basically anybody you can and say, Hey, look, we've got a great product. Uh, you yeah. know, we'd appreciate it if you support it on Kickstarter and, you know, make a promise that you're going to deliver it. And that's the biggest thing that, and the biggest, um, the biggest step back that people have about Kickstarter is that there are so many projects that, that go funded and just completely fail. Um, and it's, uh, it's upsetting. I mean, I, I can see personally how it would happen because I've been there and, you know, things seem to be a lot more expensive than you first think they are. Um, we, I mean, I, I even raised some private capital from some friends of mine, um, in our first, our first Kickstarter because
1: things were much more expensive. So, Wow. So establish trust. And the way to do that is to be as transparent as you can be about your process. That's what I've seen, at least on existing Kickstarters, is they have video and they have interviews and they try to show backers as much information as they can about the product and where they're at with it to, right. I guess, reduce any type of buyers remorse or any type of hesitation about this company isn't going to fund.
2: Yeah, people don't want to be surprised. You know, people, A, people want to see confidence in somebody. In our first Kickstarter, we showed video of us making jerky from just cutting vegetables and things like that. People just want to see that this isn't some fool in a kitchen that is just going to take my money and not produce anything. We were fortunate enough, again, to, and I would recommend that people do this is, you know, spend some money on a great logo, spend some money on great packaging, spend some money, you know, spend some money on showing people that, okay, A, these people are serious, but B, you know, they actually have what it takes to bring a product to market. And that's what's so tough to convince people of because people are naturally skeptic, particularly now, just from all of the failures and nightmares that have come out of Kickstarter, people are naturally skeptical and you just have to convince them otherwise. And being transparent, like you said, um, this is actually probably the most transparent we've ever been in terms of where the company has come and gone from. Um, a, a lot of people uh, probably don't even know that we use a co-packer, but
1: we have the exclusive here.
2: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, <laughs> this is definitely the inside scoop. But yeah, we try to be just as transparent as possible. We're hugely active on social media and Twitter, things like that. We're actually coming up with a new jerky right now, a Reaper, a Carolina Reaper infused jerky, which is just insanely hot. And we had some issues with USDA signing off on our uh, on our nutritional analysis. And we pre-sold like 500 units. And so trying to be transparent with people, I've been transparent with those people. Like, hey, look, I'm, I'm waiting to hear back on USDA it's I'm not going to ship when I said it was going to ship. And if you want to refund, email me and I'll refund you your money. And we got probably 90 responses back of just, you know, don't worry about it. Uh, thank you for the update. You guys are awesome. Keep making awesome jerky. It feels good to know that, you know, the people that are paying for your product ahead of time, you know, have that kind of trust.
1: Well, imagine a huge part of that is that you've already delivered on a product before. And so you've established precedents to where you're not going to just run off with these people's money.
2: Right, right. Fortunately, we've been around for two years now. We're so old. Um, (laughs) It's been two long years. We've built sort of this rabid fan base. It's amazing, actually. It's kind of fun where, you know, people, they just can't get enough and they want to tell other people about it. And we hear all the time, you know, so-and-so brought this jerky into the office and I just had to have it. And, um, it's actually kind of funny. This year is the year we're really approaching distribution and, uh, really trying to tackle some more shelf space, at least regionally. Um, I've always been kind of, of the mindset, uh, you know, crawl before you walk. And so we definitely wanted to take a couple years or a year to kind of get our footing and make sure we had a product that was definitely going to be widely received and then try to tackle some of the bigger shelf space, which is my focus this year. And so, yeah, it's been quite interesting.
1: So I ordered some beef jerky from you guys right after we scheduled the interview because, you know, product research that I can write off, right? Right, Um, right, right. (laughs) um, You know, I have to say I've never tasted beef jerky with as much flavor. I was just blown away. It was Almost too much flavor, and I can't believe I I can say that, but I had the mojo jalapeno and the sweet sriracha barbecue, and those are both flavors that I've never had before in another beef jerky. It's something that I would have never thought of. I think that's part of the reason for your success is that you're not trying to be like the other beef jerkies that are out there that make me feel. So I'm from Texas. I feel I can say this. All the beef jerkies want to speak to me as a cowboy or somebody that's from a ranch or, and they've got <laughs> a horseshoe on it, the, you know, that your packaging. Yeah. So you talked about marketing and packaging a little bit. Yeah. Your packaging sets your beef jerky apart from everybody else. There's some things that I think that are really unique about it that I, I want to make sure that we cover.
2: Yeah. So, uh, in the beef jerky world, there's this sort of stigma that you have to have a window on the front of your bag, um, in order to sell your product. And, uh, it, there's some truth to that for sure. I mean, people want to see what they're buying. Um, And we do, we have a window on the back of our product, but when we came up with the brand, we wanted something that was, like you said, totally different from really anything else that's out there. And that's why we kind of went with this jet black package with really kind of bold typeface and bold colors. And it's probably the one thing that people really comment on, at least initially before they've ever had our product, is that how cool our package looks.
1: Yeah. So I have to say that you obviously have a premium product here compared to other beef jerkies it sells at a premium price. I think it's safe to say that Mm -hmm. it's, it's an uh, higher end beef jerky, right? Mm -hmm. And, and it's probably justified by the all natural ingredients and the unique recipes. The matte finish on the bag actually stuck out at me because most of the beef jerkies have this like high gloss that you can see from across the convenience store to, Mm -hmm. you know, finish to it. And this is almost the other way around where it's it's very simple and clean and, you know, you use uh sans serif fonts and, you know, it's, it's very well designed. And I like the uh, indicator on the front that tells you how much heat you've got mm-hmm. in your recipe, you know, one through four bars, which is actually really good because uh, a lot of beef jerkies are, uh, you know, you see the window, but you have no idea what to expect from it.
2: Right. Yeah. Well, and we were, you know, like I said, um, we were initially starting out by making spicy beef jerky. That was kind of our stick, if you will, you know, we wanted, uh, we couldn't find spicy beef jerky. So, um, you know, or spicy beef jerky that actually had a spice B a flavor assigned. I mean, what is uh, other than sweet just and spicy? Right. Yeah. What it what is hot and spicy? What is sweet and spicy? I don't. I don't know what that is. And so, that's why we have very specific. You know, it, when it says habanero, we use actual habaneros. When it says jalapeno, we use actual jalapenos. We we did want to be different. You know, like you said, there's two different worlds right now in the beef jerky marketplace, and it's you have your commercially available beef jerky, which is you know, I, I don't know if I can say the the brands, but I'm sure everybody knows them, and then you have uh, your. Crack Craft mom and pop beef jerky, and those are normally in a clear bag with a label on the front, and that's that's all well and good. But we knew we didn't want to be that, and we knew we didn't want to be the corporate jerky. And uh, oddly enough, we've kind of fallen in this weird space right now, where we're we're about to be on some product shelves for sure, but we've sold a ton of jerky online, and uh, we've kind of carved out this weird area where we're not the mom and pop jerky with the with the clear bag with the label and we're not the corporate jerky that's on every uh, on every convenience store shelf and so we're kind of in this limbo where uh I think we're going to be able to compete with some of those some of those larger brands uh even from a price point we are a little a little bit pricier but even even in a c-store setting you know a bag of some of those other jerkies can run you anywhere from 679 to 759 so i think we'll still be able to kind of get in there for sure
1: no, that's really exciting. So can you talk at all about sales in the last two years, at least to the point of saying that you're able to you know, live off of this business 100% of the time, or is this something that you do on the side? Or,
2: uh, Yeah. So myself and my wife, Michelle, we both work full-time for the company. And we'd started that actually just after our first year. So we've been paying ourselves for over a year now, which is uh, still kind of crazy for me to say, because this was never supposed to be this. But um but you have to, you know, we have a 16 a month old mouth to feed and we have a house to pay for. And yeah, so we've, we've been fortunate. We don't take a ton of money out of the business. And I don't recommend that people do that, obviously, initially, especially something that's as cash intensive as a product where you're always having to cycle cash back into inventory and into new things and, you know, keep interest in marketing. So we pull out only what we need and we've been very fortunate. But that comes from the fact that we've just online You know, we've provided Jerky to over 15,000 customers. Wow. Yeah, in just two years. And with very little marketing in terms of display advertising or anything like that, we do some retargeting ads on Facebook. That's really pretty much our marketing budget. And those are very, very effective. But yeah, I mean, we've done 20,000 orders. I'm just trying to take a peek at our dashboard over here. 20,000 orders
1: online in two years. That's really amazing. You know, I looked at your Facebook page and you have like Mm -hmm. 7,000 likes. So that's one in every three people that buys your product likes you on Facebook. Yeah, that's ridiculous. Yeah, Yeah,
2: 7,500 followers on Twitter and almost 7,000 likes on Facebook. And we have 130 something five star reviews on Facebook. (laughs) So it's uh, so and we only have 130 something reviews total. So I'll let you guys do the math.
1: Well, so talk about that for a little bit. So you said most of your sales were, or all their sales right now are online?
2: Uh, the majority of them are online. And it, I was kind of okay. getting into the distribution thing earlier and I lost my train of thought, but we don't really, we, until this year, we haven't really started chasing down store shelves. Everything has come to us. Which, you know, not to sound condescending, it's just that's what has happened is people have given the jerky to a friend or, you know, taken the jerky into their local store and it's like, hey, do you guys carry this brand? And then whoever runs that little store will call us and say, hey, I need to I need to stock your stuff. And, you know, we probably have. We want to say 15 to 20 stores across the country, you know, carrying our product just because they reached out to us and just had to have it. So um, we've been very fortunate on that side of things where our wholesale accounts have
1: just kind of fallen in our lap, quite literally. That's really great. You know, I think one of the challenges that I'm thinking about right now is that typically the margin on retail is at least, you know, let's say 50, 30 to 50 percent. Right. So if you're a supplier and you're giving Mm -hmm. a product for two dollars, the C store wants to sell it for four. How are you able to manage that with your product when you're now you're going to have to eat into that margin to distribute it? Has that been something that you've been able to absorb because you've got decent margins, or is that uh, you figured out a way of negotiating with volume or something else? Yeah, so we have decent margins. You
2: know, jerky is expensive to right. make. That's why it's so expensive. You know, people are like, "Why is beef jerky so expensive?" And I'm like, "Well, you take a one-pound chunk of steak, and then you take all the moisture out of it." And then you weigh it again and you sell it by that weight. You're trying to explain that process to people is kind of um, befuddling sometimes because people just don't understand why it's so expensive. And uh, it's because you're drying out all of the product. So we definitely are going to have to compensate with volume. It's, we're definitely a volume product. There's no way around that. You know, it is one of those things where you have to look at it at the end of the day. Do you want to lose a potentially high volume contract over 50 cents a bag? Or do you make 50 cents a bag, but you sell 200,000 units a year You know, with one retailer? I know what I would choose, sure. especially in my position where my overhead is somewhat low because I utilize a co-packer. So I don't have to pay all of those employees and pay the gas, lights, water on all of that equipment and the building. (laughs) I don't have to pay all of that. So we're kind of in a position where, yes, our margins are a little slimmer because we are paying a little bit more to produce the product, um, both from a recipe and a a standpoint and the fact that we utilize a co-packer. But um, it makes it that much easier for me to say, okay, you know, if I make X amount per bag for this contract and they're going to do, you know, 200,000 bags a year. I mean, why wouldn't I? It's, that's, that's right. more, that's more of my product in more people's hands.
1: Uh, more than you can sell on the website. So, yeah, exactly. So it's, right. uh,
2: because it is a, it is a convenience product. We're completely blown away that people order it as much as they do online, because then they have to wait for it, you know, a couple of days, three days to get it. When it's really something that you're walking through the grocery store and you see a bag of jerky, and you're like, okay, I, I want some jerky right now, you know. it's So it's uh, to overcome that has been awesome, but acknowledging that and and knowing that you know it's they're certainly going to eat into our margins to gain distribution, but we'll be all the better for it for sure.
1: That's a great point. Maybe you can elaborate a little bit more on, you said the distributors kind of came to you and that's kind of how you've branched out with local retail stores. So you just started with one and kind of worked your way up from there?
2: Yeah, literally. A store, I was in D.C. doing technology consulting and, and a store here in our hometown in Atlanta, out of the blue, called me one day and said, hey, w- when somebody that works here just brought in a bag of your jerky and I just need info on how to order it. And it was kind of really bizarre because we weren't set up at all to do anything like that yet. and But we figured it out because <laughs> it's obviously uh, somebody's calling you to give you money. Right. So, you know, so we put a quick sell sheet together and sent her prices Uh, just crunch some numbers on margins for wholesale. And, um, which we knew, we always knew kind of where we were going to be on wholesale, but we figured it out and then, um, you know, shipped her some product. And fortunately we were moving back home, you know, for the birth of our child. And, you know, now we're able to service that by ourselves and just drive the product down the road. But, um, which
1: that's the best one to have. So that's really good. Roll up your sleeves, save some money and uh, ship the product yourself. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And I guess you establish the relationship with the retailer that way too, because you can go in and you drop the box off and you shake their hand and they put a, name to a face and mm-hmm.
2: yeah and that's that's the great thing because we get to go in uh the, the even better thing is that uh this particular store, Buford Highway Farmers Market, it's a pretty well known international supermarket here in, in Atlanta. They really like for us to come in and do samples and we'll come in on a Saturday or Sunday morning and just hand out samples to everybody. And that's a great, that's, that's probably the most rewarding piece of it for me is actually seeing people try the jerky and, uh, and you know, okay, I'll take a bag of that. I'll take a bag of that. And it's even today, it's, been two years now. It's just still bizarre to me, you know, to hand somebody a product off the shelf at a a supermarket that, you know, that we built and and have them walk away. A funny story, really quick. We were at, we were actually doing these samples and this, this gentleman and his wife come up and they try a piece and they're like, Oh, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. And then they walked away for a second. They came back and they tried another piece. That's really good. And I was like, well, can I get you a bag? You know, this is the price and everything. And they are like, oh, sorry, we're, I mean, we're vegetarian. It's delicious, <laughs> but we're vegetarian, so we can't actually buy any. And I'm like, okay, that's a head scratcher to begin with. But they're starting to walk away. And I see them stop and they come back and they're like, "Okay, we have to have a bag. (laughs) So (laughs) I'm texting my friends. I'm like, we literally just sold beef
1: jerky to a vegetarian. (laughs) (laughs) That's an amazing story. Thank you for sharing that. All of that is actually a great story. You know, I know somebody that's trying to get into a grocery store now and they're kind of caught between working with brokers and distributors because sometimes it's hard to get the attention of a buyer at a store. Mm hmm. You had people pull your product through into the store or did you approach the buyer directly? For
2: actually for, I would say 90% of, if not more of the, of the wholesale accounts we have right now, they have reached out to us and said, Hey, so-and-so gave me your product. I'd like to put it on the shelf. And so we've been very fortunate now too. We're talking about smaller grocery stores, smaller gourmet uh, boutique shops. Things of that nature. Non-chain. Yeah, non-chain yep. type things. This year, we've really
1: started sort
2: of trying to hustle things to smaller chains. Where we're not trying to take on Walmart or anything like that, obviously. And a lot of people don't realize that Walmart is just insanely big. People don't realize exactly how big they are. Uh, everybody has dreams of their products being on one of their shelves, but <laughs> then you realize that you can only do 50% of your business with Walmart, and they're going to order a hundred and something truckloads uh, for their first order. (laughs) Then you start looking at how much
1: business you do. And they're going (laughs) to hammer down that price until you have like barely any margin. Oh yeah. It's just, just, yeah.
2: yeah. I mean, you'll have pennies, but it'll be a lot of pennies. So (laughs) that is the, that is the one thing you have to keep in mind. So yeah, we're trying to get some smaller grocery chains, things like that. And kind of Test the market, because a lot of those places require that you have a distributor in place. And right now we self-service everything, you know, so it'll be a good for instance, there's a there's a chain of six stores in Washington that we're we're working with right now because they're they're really interested in the product. It'll be kind of one of our first steps into distribution, which is a little frightening, but it's not a I know it's nothing that we can't probably tackle. So it's just, uh, you know, trying to make sure that you. Like you said, like you can take a beating on your on your price points a little bit. Just know in the back of your head, as long as you're making something, some pennies, yeah. As long as you're making something, uh, especially this stage of the game, if you can get on six supermarket shelves and still make something at the end of the day, You know that's the kind of things you have to do. And early on, you just have to get out there and whatever you can make, you make it. And, and you're just happy you made it and just know that that's more hands. You never know who th- who's gonna pick it up. That's the thing, it's these people that order from us online, our customers. I never know, I, every bag of jerky I send out the door is like a little soldier and I never know where it's gonna go right. and what it's gonna bring back. You know, And I just kind of have that outlook.
1: It's been pretty fun so far. That's really smart. There's a, the saying that pigs grow fat and hogs get slaughtered.
2: Yeah, no, for sure. It kind of got to grow your footprint. And that, that's been our focus uh, so far. And it continues to be our focus. And there is a great story about the founder of uh, Bare Naked Granola and how this girl worked for six years making granola out of her college dorm room oven and then sold to Craft for $60 million. Wow. After six years. And, and, you know, it's wow. just her story about hustling local grocery store shelves and making sure people were picking up her granola instead of the other guys granola and you know it's just you just got to get out there and grind and you know eventually something's going to pop you're going to be in every store that you wanted to be in or you know one of
1: the big guys is going to say okay we've had enough of this and snatch you up so well i think you have a really amazing story i mean uh, again kudos for for creating a product with such high competition and being successful at it i think that's amazing Appreciate that. Thank can you, you maybe talk a little bit about some times when something didn't work out quite well or oh, which which one which one do you want to hear about uh, I know there have been some times where I've been ready to throw in the towel and I'll sit on the couch with my wife and she'll sit down and say okay why are you doing this what's the goal here and I'll say okay this is the part of me this is a core belief of mine that this has to work and she said so why are you giving up but yeah. it's really hard to, to keep that positive uh, mindset all the time and especially as a small business owner to compete against the big guys yeah
2: there have been times where we've had set setbacks and and missteps. And there are a lot of outside forces at play, obviously, from package production to actually getting product delivered and things like that. You can't always control. And so, again, that comes back to the the transparency thing where, you know, as long as I communicate that, I I get more stressed out than my customers do, uh, like all the time. You know, for instance, this Reaper thing I was discussing with you, you have to just put it out there and say, look, this is Really beyond my control, uh, but don't pass the buck. Own it. I mean, it's our company at the end of the day, and you know, here's the options. But there have been so many times, especially when it comes to cash flow and things like that, when you're running a a cash-intensive business that requires a lot of inventory. I'm sure there are times where you sit down and you look at the bank account and you're like, how did how did we get here? How did this happen? And kind of scroll through your spending and you're like, okay, well, maybe we shouldn't be spending so much money on X, Y, and Z. I haven't had that moment where I've just been like, okay, maybe this is just not going to work. Maybe I just want to – I just need to throw in the towel. Um, I haven't had that yet just because I see the feedback we get on our product um, from all of our customers. And it's just like I don't know that there's a way I could – close up shop and throw in the towel. There might literally be riots somewhere. Uh, if (laughs) we, if we were just, listen, we're not selling any more jerky, you know, we might have a real problem on our hands. So, uh, so we just have to keep grinding. If you gotta, if you need more money, you gotta go out and raise more money. I mean, I, a majority owner of the company, but if I need to sell more of the company to keep it going and, you know, until we get that footing, like we're talking about until we get that market share where, okay, now we're making money to really cover things, you know, so be it. I mean, it's that's what it's there for. So, you just got to do whatever you got to do to make it run. I mean,
1: right. A smaller chunk of something big is worth more than a chunk of something that failed, right? Yeah, exactly. Didn't make yeah. it. Yeah. So, might as well keep going. You talked about cash flow a few times now. I feel like people rush from idea to manufacturing really quickly without testing. Mm -hmm. That's in my observation. Mm -hmm. And the second is I think on the funding side is not making the proper assumptions around funding in terms of expenses and revenue. Like people think they're going to scale up in a faster fashion or maybe they misrepresent some of their expenses and and because they're not managing their cash flow and their bills to vendors, they end up in trouble. So can you talk a little bit about some of that?
2: Yeah, it's a constant balancing game. And uh I'm admittedly not always that great with it <laughs> because I just always want to be – pursuing the next project. I'm kind of that kind of guy, you know, we'll go from we have four different flavors coming out right now that we're working on the three originals that we're doing for Kickstarter and then our Reaper jerky. But I'll be sitting around like, well, we can make a Reaper hot sauce. And so we'll tease that on Twitter. And it's like, okay, but, you know, there's dollars that are associated with that. And so we still have to sell all of the jerky we already make. So It's like a constant, you know, sometimes I, I battle myself where I'm like, oh, my gosh, this would be so good. And people are so receptive to it. You know, the Reaper thing, came out of kind of the blue and we ended up pre-selling 500 bags and that was just because i just cut it off at 500 bags we actually sold 550 because i got so many emails like oh my gosh i missed out on the pre-sale that we just made 50 more available again it's that crawl before you walk mentality that you really should have in in terms of don't bite off more than you can chew just pace yourself it's tough to say this with uh with my technology background sitting on my shoulder is, you know, you're not racing anybody. And sometimes you are, but uh, you've got to finish the race one way or the other. So whether, you know, if you don't finish, it doesn't matter if you finish first or second. So you definitely have to pace yourself and not get ahead of yourself and and make sure you do things the right way and make sure you have a product that people are going to want to buy. That was the big thing for us is that I could put just really terrible jerky and a really flashy package. And people might buy it the one time, but, uh, you know, they're not coming back and, you know, we have about a, a 30 to 40% customer retention rate. So, um, huge. Yeah. So you definitely want to make sure you have a, have something that's a quality product before you rush it to market.
1: Great points. So as we're starting to wrap up the show a little bit, can you talk a little bit about things that is the most valuable when bringing a product to market? Maybe just one tip to help everybody, you know, help their product succeed. One tip, gosh, that's, that is such an open question. Yeah, it's, uh,
2: I think my biggest piece of advice would be to maintain, because self-destruction is probably the biggest thing that faces entrepreneurs and and people that build things like this. And you just have to keep that confidence. There's like this really cliche saying that an entrepreneur is somebody that will live like nobody else will. So one day they can live like nobody else can. Right. Um, You have to have that mindset that's like, okay, not everybody's out here doing this. A lot of people go to work and that's the life they lead. And they do very well. I mean, a lot of people make a lot more money than I do, for sure, and have a lot more time off and a lot more time to spend with their family. Don't let yourself get in the way of your own success. And in that same vein, don't let perfect be the thing that hampers you. Like I said, we used to sit around tables and just beat a product to death and it would never go anywhere just because we we let perfect become evil. And it was always the stumbling block. At some point, you have to start. Right. That's my biggest piece of advice for anybody is at some level, you just have to jump in and, and get your feet wet and hope for the best. You'll learn how to swim, but you have to jump in first. So. That would be my biggest piece of advice. I see it all the time on Reddit where, you know, people are bouncing ideas off of these forums and and these social media things. Oh, this is my idea, guys, tear it apart. Everybody goes and tears it down and then the guy comes back a couple months later and he's like, here's my idea. You guys, this is where we were two months ago. You know, man, why haven't you just got out there and put a prototype together or put a, you know, working MVP, whatever it is. Why haven't you made some beef jerky? Why haven't you done something? You know, we can sit here and talk about it all day and it's until it looks perfect on paper. At the end of the day, once you launch it, it might still be trash. So you're never going to know until you just dive in.
1: And that would be probably my biggest piece of advice. Great. No, that's perfect. I totally relate to analysis paralysis, being an engineer. So uh, we have to look out for risk and failure Mm -hmm. and all these other things. And if you stack everything up, then all of a sudden nothing is ready. Yeah, So I could totally appreciate that advice. Can you maybe talk a little bit about what you have going on now and where people can find you and if you've got any new products that we should look out for?
2: Yeah, so I've mentioned it a couple of times. We have a Carolina Reaper infused beef jerky coming out that is just insanely hot. Um, One of the girls that works in our kitchen tried it. When it first came out, when we were doing testing and um, she said she blistered the roof of her mouth comes with a warning label. We don't do warnings. We don't do signatures. <laughs> we don't do waivers. You know what you're getting when you're buying our jerky. So we did put in a big black scary bag with a huge we had to change our heat scale to have an extra extra chevron. So it is hot. I will tell you firsthand. It is very, very hot. But people kept harassing me about it. I didn't want to make it. But people were just like, oh, my gosh, you got to get hotter. You got to get hotter. So uh, so we did it. So that'll be available very soon, actually. We just got our nutrition squared away with the USDA. And then we have our Kickstarter going on right now, and that is for the three original flavors. And so, as you mentioned, we have a lot of unique flavors, but people kept pushing and pushing us to do sort of some classic beef turkey flavors. And so we've done that with three different flavors, a traditional, a uh, a teriyaki, and a sea salt and cracked black pepper. And we've put our little twists on all of them, and obviously they'll have our commitment to quality. They're going to be very, very good. I don't know if it'll be live by the time we finish this podcast, but that is coming out. And so those products will definitely be available in the next couple of months.
1: I think you've sold yourself short a little bit there. If you look at the crowdfunding page, you're already funded. Yeah, it's definitely going to happen. Yes, it has to happen at this point. So, so you, with, with 20 days to go, you've already killed your goal.
2: <laughs> yeah, that's true. Like I told you, we have a really rabid fan base. It's just insane. Yeah. We do a lot of partnering with video gamers. And I don't know if you're familiar with a website called Twitch. Yep. Yep. Okay. Yeah. We do a lot of partnering with a lot of streamers on Twitch and it's been a great source of marketing for us. But those guys, and you all know who I'm talking about on Twitter, they are just, it is just a rabid, rabid fan base. And it's awesome. You know, we send out a tweet and a couple of our streamers retweet it and then it's all of a sudden, you know, 50 hours later, you've raised over $12,000. So Thank you, too. Thank you to all of
1: you. Okay, so, I, yeah, I can't let yeah. you go now. Originally, we were going to wrap up the show now, but now that you... Right, I know. I, I forgot all
2: about... <laughs> I forgot to
1: mention Twitch. And they
2: would crucify me if I left them out, by the way. Maybe you can edit this into the beginning of the show. No, 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 no. This is good.
1: This is how things evolve, right? Products evolve. That's true. And so, so does the show. So... That's true. Yeah, no, we have to talk about this because, in my opinion, Twitter is like this giant stadium and everyone's yelling at each other. And unless you have some sort of a tool that monitors all that, it's just almost impossible to get noticed or for me it is or what I've seen anyway. So talk a little bit more about your relationships with these specific communities and how you approach them and now how they're retweeting your stuff.
2: So me and my group of friends, we've always been, you know, sort of into video games and into the communities that surround that. So we had a forum around our own community. And so we kind of started our discussion there with a lot of different things. When we first launched the Kickstarter, we were able to put up forum posts. And that's one kind of social media outlet. I see it as a social media outlet, a, uh, a message forum. But then this website came along, twitch.tv, where you can literally watch people play video games. It's... One of the most fascinating and bizarre things at the same time where these uh, these guys, these young kids are making a great living for themselves and building a great community for themselves playing video games. And people can go there and watch and interact through a chat function and really kind of get to know the entertainer or the content creator. And so we naturally kind of took to that when it first rolled out. And we learned that video gamers like beef jerky, uh, I, surprisingly yeah, enough. Yeah, I thought it was just all Mountain Dew and... Uh, Doritos, yeah. So we had the idea that, hey, maybe if we send these guys some jerky, they'll talk about it on their channel if they like it. And so, so we did that. And we were kind of one of the first sort of Brands, and I don't mind saying this, we were one of the first sort of brands to really start trying to position ourselves aligned with streamers. And they're going to give me a hard time about being a total sellout, which is fine. But, you know, we basically just approached these guys and said, look, we're a small beef jerky company. We'd love to send you some products. If you like it, tell your stream about it. We'll set up a little discount code for them and then we'll give you some money off the top for everybody that uses your code. And so far, I mean, it's worked incredibly. We go to conferences all over the country um, and meet a lot of the guys that are in the chat room with us. We watch a lot of the streams. A lot of people know that we're always active in the chat room. And we've been able to build our other social media properties based on these relationships that we have on Twitch. And so a lot of the gamers follow us on Twitter. And every now and then we give away gaming-related prizes and, and things of that nature. But really, our following has been really, really built organically by those relationships we have With the streamers on Twitch, and those conversations we have with all of the viewers on Twitch. So we have been very very fortunate with those relationships because they really have bolstered the company it was wrong of me to not mention it before but we just get so talked up in the actual product itself but yeah twitch has been amazing for us and it's just an example of how communities can really drive a product and make it thrive because you really want to build we talked we used to talk about this in the consulting world all the time when working with associations in dc you really want to build almost like activists for your brand. You want to build evangelists for your brand. So it's those guys that are taking the jerky and taking pictures of it and putting it on Instagram or taking pictures of it and putting it on Twitter and really sharing the excitement that, you know, their jerky showed up in the mail. And, um, You know, for that, it's not really cool for us to see, but it's money. I mean, it's real dollars that, you know, anytime somebody shares your brand and somebody says, hey, you know, that that actually looks pretty good. I'll go try it. Or even if they go check out your website and now you're able to remarket to that person through the advertising channels that are available, Facebook, Twitter, um, whatever it is,
1: you know, that's that's extremely powerful. That's that's really amazing. You know that you basically created a second audience or another group just based on those types of relationships. So That's huge. Mm -hmm. Um, Thank you very much for sharing that. You know, I think we could probably talk for another 30 minutes on marketing. I know, sure. Um, Actually, so (laughs) I'm hoping that maybe a year from now you can come back on the show and we can start talking about some of the new products and get into more detail about marketing.
2: Yeah, I was actually just going to say, it was like, maybe I'll come back a few months or a year from now and and we'd see where we're at and that we can talk more about the marketing side of things now that we kind of just teased it there Uh, at the end.
1: Stay tuned for more. (laughs) Exactly. Well, thanks a lot, Brad, for coming on the show. Do you have any parting words? No, thank you so much for
2: having me. Uh, visit www.savagejerky.com for all of your jerky needs. Um, and then, you know, look for us on your local show coming soon, I'm sure. Great.
1: Well, we're going to have all those links on the show notes so people can find you and reach out to you on social media. And you have an amazing tasting product. So congrats on that. And I wish you guys future success. Great. Thank you again. And that concludes today's episode. Thanks for listening. I've put all the links that we've covered under the show notes posted on the productstartupcom episode four. Join me next week as I talk with Matt Hoffma and Eric Palombo from Mini Materials. They sell 112th scale construction materials like cinder blocks made from real cement, bricks made from real terracotta, and wooden pallets and wooden planks. They even have concrete mix to help anyone build realistic models. One last thing. If you like this episode and you want to see more like it, or if you want to see something completely different, please leave me a review on iTunes by going to theproductstartup.com slash review. I really appreciate your support. I read all the comments and questions and I try to incorporate them into future episodes. Reviews also help me get new guests on the show. So until next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Product Startup Podcast with your host, Philip Veliza. For more great content and to stay up to date, visit theproductstartup.com. Your guide to getting there. <laughs>
0: Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Product Startup Podcast, the show that teaches you what it really takes to bring your product to market and turn it into a big success. This podcast series is brought to you by MacO Design & Invent, the first firm in North America to provide global caliber end-to-end physical consumer product development to startups, inventors, and small product businesses. If you're looking for product development help on your invention, head over to Macodesign.com. That's M-A-K-O design.com for a free consultation from one of Maco Design's four design studios from coast to coast. Thanks for listening and see you next time.